Welcome to the Metta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hello. Hey there. I thought we could start with just a couple of minutes of meditation um, to more fully arrive and gather our energy. And I'll, I'll guide you through it. If you could just sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. You can start by listening to sound. See if you can have the sounds just wash through you. Of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But you don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them come, let them go. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. And then to your breath. See what place you feel the breath most distinctly. This is just the normal, natural breath. Maybe it's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place. Bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. And when you find your attention has wandered, you've gone to the past, to the future, judgment, speculation, whatever it is, we use that moment as a kind of training and letting go gracefully without judgment. See if you can practice letting go and simply returning your attention to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we start over. That's why we sometimes call meditation a kind of resilience training. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. It doesn't matter where you went. Nothing's ruined. Nothing's lost. We let go. We begin again. So thank you. The topic is raising resilient children and creating thriving families, learning from science and wisdom traditions. I was trying to look something up about tonight earlier, and uh, there were a couple of things with sort of similar titles, and I thought, this must be it. Um. I'm just going to read the bios of um, these two men, and uh, we'll begin. Dr. Chris Willard is a psychologist and educational consultant who's been practicing meditation for 20 years. He currently serves on the board of directors at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and is the president of the Mindfulness and Education Network. Dr. Willard teaches at Harvard Medical School and he's the author of several books, including his most recent, Raising Resilience, released in 2017. Dr. Mark Burton is a, is a board-certified developmental behavioral pediatrician. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics at New York Medical College and a frequent lecturer on topics related to child development, including autistic spectrum disorders, ADHD, parenting, and mindfulness. 
Dr. Burton incorporates mindfulness into his work, having trained the John Kabat-Zinn Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, and is the author of two books, The Family ADHD Solution and Mindful Parenting for ADHD. Okay. I don't have a doctorate. I left college to go to India. <laughs> um, so one thing that I, I'm very curious about right away um, is the degree to which you've been able to integrate the practice of mindfulness, each of you, into your work. Um, I began practice, meditation practice, in 1971. And I came back to America from India in 1974. And in those days, if you were at Harvard and you were meditating, you didn't usually mention you were a meditator anywhere. Uh, and that really is it was quite... Um, quite apart from people's professional uh, efforts and, and their kind of presentation into the world. So maybe each of you could talk about your own journey with mindfulness. Um, sure, I can start. So I, my interest in mindfulness got started. I was in college um, about 20 years ago, taking some time off. Um, and as a nice suburban kid, we call that finding yourself versus other people call that getting your shit together. And um, my parents basically dragged me on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was completely transformative for me. And I felt calmer and more creative and suddenly felt like things started to make sense. And from there, I, I finished my undergrad degree and um, kind of did a few different things for a few years, was a special ed teacher for a while, was a... Uh, um, an artist assistant and doing all kinds of things, but still had an interest in meditation and mindfulness, going on retreats whenever I could, and went to graduate school for psychology. And from there, was really interested in figuring out how can I start sharing this with, with younger people. Um, if only I'd had this when I was a little bit younger. And so that's really what got, got me started. Um, and now it feels like, you know, it's almost like if you go to graduate school or, or even in education, um, you know, you don't know about mindfulness, that that's, that's something to keep a big secret. So it's been an incredible change just in, in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, I was, um, I did my medical training in the Bay Area. So, um, so while I was in medical training, somebody introduced me to meditation practice, one of the physicians actually. And um, so at that point, I got kind of interested in it for myself. And actually, I was working near uh, Spirit Rock. So I saw a couple of talks by uh, Sylvia Borstein. Um, and actually, it's a lot like you were describing. What I feel really fortunate about is if you kind of look at a um, chart of sort of both the, both the research around mindfulness and also if uh, someone once showed me a chart on Google about the searches about mindfulness, they're both kind of these exponentially... Oh, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> cool. so there's this exponential curve of, of, and that <clears> just <throat> takes off. And that was really, I feel fortunate, like kind of where I got interested personally. So I kept it to myself for a long time um, and then kind of had an epiphany almost at a conference, uh, one of the Mind Life conferences. I think actually Sharon was there in DC. Uh, and over the course of a weekend, just realized like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know why I'm keeping this to myself anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, I work with a lot of families and parents and it's very stressful and uh, overwhelming at times. And I just realized like, this is really kind of silly that, that I'm not trying to integrate this more. So at that point, I started to try to integrate it. Um, and I'll tell you how much things have changed. And then I'll, uh, which just, so when I started writing my, my first book, which integrated uh, mindfulness into taking care of families with ADHD, my parents pulled me aside for a really serious sit down because they said, you know, 
<laughs> if you publish a book for the public that uses that mindfulness stuff, you're just going to wreck your career. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> and, uh, and the end point of that story is actually my parents now go on retreat with Sharon annually. So <laughs> Nicely done. It's yeah. so. fantastic. Um, actually, I'd love to hear from both of you. Do you think it's harder for kids these days? I mean, that's sort of the, uh, you know, common understanding or, or feeling, but. Um, I, I would say it's a mixed bag. You know, I think some of um, what we're living with is a culture that makes it feel like it's harder for kids. Like it makes it really uh, frightening to be a parent in some ways, frightening to, you know, be a kid in some ways that, um, that aren't necessarily real. I think a part of it is um, a lot of the information being fed and the pace we're being fed, the information makes it, the perception of it seem different. Um, and then the flip side of that is certainly, you know, it is obviously a really unsettled, difficult world we're living in. I think there is a reality to the sort of conversations we need to be having, to the impact of technology and the internet on kids. So there is, a, so it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really different. There's, there's new challenges, but there's also new technologies, not screen technologies, but we know more about child development. We know more about how to build resilience in our kids. We have more tools, but there's more things we need to use them on because the world is just more complicated and, and more challenging. It's, and all of us who are parents, I think, can, can certainly see that. I don't know if it's harder for kids, but I think it's maybe harder for parents. Yeah. I think just the volume of information parents yeah. are exposed to is just, you know, it's, it's like uh, it's a swamp. You right. just get, excuse, well, that too. I was, you get swamped is what I meant. It's the same thing. <laughs> and conflicting information, yeah. right? I mean, you can, you can go and confirm what you want about your parenting style just like you can about any political viewpoint you might have as well, right? I mean, yeah. Interesting. How would you define resilience? I, I don't uh, Linda Graham, like who you People may look know, at me and say, right? how do you define love? And I go, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> can't do it in less than a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll steal Linda Graham's definition. Linda Graham says it's, it's your ability to bounce back, yeah. right, from, from life's difficulties. Life, you know, the Buddha said life is suffering. We might say life is stressful. How well do we manage those stresses? How well do we encourage our kids to manage those, which is different than how well do we manage our kids' stresses, right? right. How much do we give them the skills to deal with life's stresses, which are inevitable. Well, I was just going to say, I think when it comes to family, that's like, you know, I've always felt like if the basic teaching of a lot of this is that life can be pretty uncertain and challenging and, you know, some of how we feel and live day to day comes from how do we manage that situation, you know, parenting is like the crux of it. You know, it's a situation where we don't, we are invested more than anything else in the world and yet there is constant uncertainty and change. You know, and we can't control and fix everything. So, um, so resilience is both for parents and kids, as right. Chris defined it. And in the midst of that, you know, how do you bounce back when things don't go like they should? You know, you feel they should. I've heard uh, sometimes I've heard kind of the stress response defined as um, the stressful situation meeting the amount of resource we have within to <laughs> devote to it. Mm -hmm. You know, so what what helps create that sense of resource for a child? For kids, do you want to go? Sure. I mean, to to me, this is where mindfulness can fit in, but I think this is bigger than than just mindfulness. But it's about being able to to face that stress, right? The stress response is fight or flee, or freeze and forget it, or kids will have a different F word that they put in there, right? But that basically, like, can we also face that? Right. I and mean, people are interested now, not just in the fight or flight response, but in the attend and befriend response, 
which I kind of think of as mindfulness and compassion. Can I show up mindfully to what this stress is? And can I maybe start to learn how to befriend that, have some compassion toward the situation or toward myself through it? Yeah. And tender friend, um, doesn't it also have to do with a sense of connection with others? Like you're not right. facing whatever you're facing in isolation, but some sense of yeah, there, community. There's a, um, I mean, when you look at a huge topic like resilience, you know, obviously all of us up here are interested in talking about mindfulness, but it's not only about, you know, this particular practice alone. Um, so Robert Brooks, who's just a um, <coughs> brilliant researcher, and uh, actually I think he's more of a lecturer about resilience, talks about just the concept of having uh, for kids what he calls a charismatic adult in your life. Like just one really strong, deep relationship goes a long way to building resilience. And that I think the same thing goes for adults. Um, so when I look at resilience, I think that's always foundational to it is, is those is relationship. In addition to everything else we can talk about, you know, tonight more specific to you know, various topics. And a benevolent, a benevolent adult, I also think of the, the notion of the benefactor in yeah, someone's yeah. life, right? And in, in practice, potentially. Yeah, I was giving a talk, I was on a panel, I wasn't giving a talk uh, in Berkeley, and somebody stood up and said to me, who loved you like when you were young? And <laughs> uh, I thought, oh, that's an interesting question, you know? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of the parents, uh, or adults resource. I also sometimes I um, teach with Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist here in town, who's, who's also written books on like Buddhism and psychotherapy. And uh, one of his idols is D.W. Winnicott, who was a psychoanalyst in the 50s. And um, Mark always quotes Winnicott as saying, uh, just be a good enough mother, just be a good enough mother. And uh, he responds to the gender issue by saying, well, it was the 50s, you know, the people who were bringing the kids to see Dr. Winnicott were the mothers. So let's say be a good enough parent. Mm -hmm. So someone in the room always raises their hand and says, what's a good enough mother? <laughs> and then Mark says, it's someone who can survive their child's rage. Mm. And then someone raises their hand and says, what does it mean to survive your child's rage? <laughs> and then Mark says, um, you're neither kind of intrusive and invasive nor shunning mm -hmm. and, right. and withdrawn. Yeah. You just, you're there with it. You're holding it, you're beholding it. And then I always say, well, that's what we call mindfulness. Mm -hmm. right. You know, we mm -hmm. learn to do that for ourselves as well with the various things that come and go, emotions and thoughts, and all these various states. But um, that's something, that kind of holding quality. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, uh, I, I come back to the people have probably seen this meme online that says never in the history of calming down. Has anyone ever calmed down by being told to calm down? And I, <laughs> I often think about that in terms of, of parenting and, and the work we do. Like what, what we're trying to do is create a space in which it's safe enough for our kids to be calm, but also safe enough for them to rage and still feel that connection. Right. Whatever is going on for them. Do they know that that love is still there, that that connection is still there? Does it have to be perfect? No, but good enough. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's an important message to the whole discussion of, of parenting in general, of like, there, there is no perfect. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, even sitting up here for a night like this, it's so easy to feel like, oh, just one more thing to do. Got it. <laughs> and, uh, but it really, the message is kind of the opposite. And, you know, it's about, you know, having that deeper connection and relationship and a safe space to be raised. And it's okay to get, I think some of these topics can cross over into almost any aspect of parenting. You look at a topic like discipline, 
there's so much debate about like, it has to be this way or that way. You know, in reality, there is no one way. And it's just important to recognize that you need a foundation of a close relationship and depth and, and that I, that, that resilience as a parent to, you know, when things get challenging to try to just be there until some path seems clear or not to add to the situation. And then the flip side is, um, as Chris was saying, you know, part of like adversity from a child's point of view is you might get in trouble once in a while. And, you know, that's part of mindfulness and that's part of raising resilient children too. Like within a safe environment, you know, that's just part of your experience, you know, and that's all just part of family. I've often said that um, for a while, my favorite definition of mindfulness, mindfulness is, you know, a type or several types of meditation practice that are based on uh, becoming more and more aware of your experience in a way that's not judging in the sense of you're not rejecting and you're also not buying into it right away. So you have some space to sort of be with it um, in, a, in a different <coughs> way. So uh, I often quote this kid who um, was an article in the New York Times about way back when mindfulness in the classroom was much more unusual. It was one of the first pilot programs of bringing the tools of mindfulness into the classroom. And um, I was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, so they asked this kid. So I figure he's in fourth grade. He's like nine or ten years old, likely. They said to him, what is mindfulness? And he responded by saying, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. (laughs) And I thought that is a great definition of mindfulness (laughs) because... What does it imply? It implies knowing you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry, not after you've exploded, not after you've sent the email, not after you've hit someone in the mouth. But it also implies a certain relationship to that anger. It's like if you are so ashamed and you're so upset and you're so frightened by what you're feeling, you just try to, you know, stamp it out. You get tighter and tighter and tighter until you explode. But at the same time, if you lose all centeredness and you get consumed with, the feeling and defined by it and overwhelmed by it, you probably hit a lot of people in the mouth because you know, <laughs> life is very frustrating. And I just thought, what a great definition, you know, to see the anger quickly, to see it in a more balanced way, that holding environment. And that gives us some space. And maybe in that space, we consider, you know, I hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. <laughs> Let me try this. Something like that, you know? And so uh, it's very empowering actually to have that ability. Right. Yeah. I think it's a, you know, one of the ways to look at it is it's awareness and, uh, and also being aware of action. And so as a parent, it's not, you know, I think there's sometimes a misperception that mindfulness practice is sort of this, like, you know, like becoming like this limp noodle of acceptance of everything. But as a parent, it can be that moment of, you know, catching yourself. And then, you know, another way of looking at awareness is, is seeing things with clarity, just like this is the situation right now. You know, in the last 72 times we had a problem with homework, we shouted over it, and look, maybe today I'm going to catch myself and try a different path a little bit. This, we're, you know, the last 72 times weren't so effective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a definition of ADHD? Of ADHD? Yeah, well, it's all over your... Oh, yeah. It's all well, over your um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess uh, that's... Yes, I do. Um <laughs> You specialize in it. I do specialize in it. I hope I can figure it out. But it's, um, yes, a little bit of a left turn. But uh, so ADHD is, um, and it does relate to this topic very directly. Um, So ADHD is a developmental condition. 
uh, really has to do with a much bigger skill set than attention, even though, so, you know, the, the word stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. What it really is and does relate directly to our discussion of mindfulness is a, is a <laughs> developmental delay, practically speaking, in this very wide ranging skill set called executive function. Um, and executive function is basically, you know, our cognitive life management skills. So the way I describe executive function to parents is if you can put the word management to it, it probably relates to executive function. So we have to manage our attention and manage our emotions and manage projects and manage time. Um, and then, um, so, you know, so the short answer is ADHD is practically a development of delay in executive function. And part of how, you know, my, my professional work came together is, um, is on some level, some of what we're developing in mindfulness is like the flip side. You know, part of what ties all this discussion together, you know, part of the discussion, um, you know, in, in, the, in the, the, news, the new book I just wrote is about just looking at executive function as a developmental path that gets tied to resilience. So executive function skills themselves are part of the skills we need to bring to managing difficult situations. And ADHD is a deficit <laughs> in those skills. And from a clinical perspective, you know, part of what mindfulness touches on is how do we build those skills directly? And I think, um, you know, I'm not a scientist at all, but uh, my uh, bare acquaintance with some of the, the contemporary research in mindfulness um, shows pretty strong effects in executive function. Yes, exactly. So yeah. that, um, so when it comes to like living with ADHD, I mean, on, on the one hand, uh, one of the first questions people often ask is, you know, can you train attention, which is part of executive function? And the answer is yes. I mean, it seems like the research is heavily pointing that way. Um, but I would say the flip side of it is that um, really the connection between mindfulness and ADHD is much bigger because just like mindfulness is, is, is in part living with stress and uncertainty, um, when, you are, when you or your child has a you know, deficit in life management skills, that creates a ton of stress and uncertainty. And if the reason I think mindfulness is so foundational or can be for families living with ADHD is the situation itself is very, you know, you're just it's tense and difficult and the answers aren't clear. And if you don't find some, uh, well, you can't, you can't find it consistently, but you know, if you can find more often some solid ground to stand on that, that space for yourself as a parent, it makes everything else you have to do with ADHD that much, mm -hmm. you know, more manageable, um, because the situation itself is challenging and, you know, and, and, and it can be really a metaphor for almost anything parents are dealing with, you know, it doesn't have to be specifically ADHD. I have a quote from you, Chris, Dr. Chris. Um, Contemplative practices like mindfulness allow kids to heal and soothe themselves rather than distract themselves from the pain, mm -hmm. which also made me think about trauma. And mm -hmm. um, what would you say in terms of, of that kind of uh, more extensive or? Yeah, I mean, so many kids that I work with are struggling with trauma, which is also a form of, of dysregulation, you know, or, or an inability to manage, you know, a lot of a lot of what's going on. There's a lot of interest these days on, on how can we make mindfulness more trauma sensitive, more trauma friendly through grounding practices um, rather than doing much sort of more deeper internal facing visualizations, eyes closed kinds of practices, but more of the kind of feeling our feet on the ground scanning around the room to look for the color blue, these sort of, you know, shorter grounding practices that can be really helpful with trauma. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not quite sure what your question is. Well, <laughs> I mean, thoughts. you know, in, in terms <laughs> but, of like, um, uh, well, first starting with 
being helped to look at the pain, to, yeah. to tolerate the pain. And then that made me think of like, what about extreme pain? Right. You know? and, and it creates, again, not just, it creates an internal space, I think, in all of us to a, an internal holding environment. Right. So as the, my job as a therapist is to create a space in which kids or adults or whoever can be vulnerable enough to open up and look at their pain and then close that up again. Ultimately, my job and ultimately any parent's job is also to help a kid create that space inside to look at their own pain, to give some spaciousness around it. Because living with trauma is incredibly claustrophobic. It's just always there. It's always this thing that's, that's with you all the time. So the more spaciousness we can help people create around that, ourselves, our kids, our families, right, the more opportunity there is for healing that, working through that. And mindfulness can be a really powerful, powerful part of that, as well as re-regulating the brain and quieting down the amygdala, which is where our fear response happens. And a lot of trauma gets kind of um, processed through there. So it just just quiets the whole nervous system down. And what about the role of self-compassion in that way? Like, yeah, you know, I guess both for the parent and the child. Right, right, right. I mean, I think self self compassion is, I think, so important to be to be teaching our kids, to be practicing ourselves as parents. Right. Again, back to that good enough parent. Right. We all. I mean, who here feels like a good enough parent? Nobody. <laughs> right. And and so I think that's where self compassion can help us. You know, just it's okay that I'm not perfect. It's okay that I haven't done everything. I am going to make mistakes. I can move past my mistakes. And then I can also model mistakes for my kids, and that's going to be important for them in terms of their resilience and their learning. I, I feel like maybe we should just say for a moment what self-compassion means. Um, so there's a, a growing discussion, both in the world of mindfulness practice, but also psychology about this idea of self-compassion. I think the, you know, the easiest way to imagine it is just recognizing that you know, there's a certain perspective we would take towards a close friend going through a challenging situation or who makes a mistake or is having a hard time with their kid. Um, and we can just sort of, I mean, you can even do it now and just imagine, you know, so your best friend comes to you and, you know, just had this terrible fight with their teenager and, you know, and just think like, what would you say? What perspective would you take? You know, what sort of words of reassurance would you use? But that, you know, really for most of us, our natural inner voice in exactly the same situation is much more harsh and abusive and down on ourselves. And, you know, and the first thing that happens when you realize that you had that same homework discussion on the 73rd time, even though you promised you weren't going to go over 60, but now we're doing, and you just have this voice that just says, oh my God, you're so bad at this. You're such an you know, idiot. You really, and you know, it's nothing we would ever do to anybody else. So the concept of self-compassion is that we can actively work on changing that inner voice to being self-compassion can sound a little fuzzy, but it's really not. It just means that we can work towards giving ourselves the same benefit of the doubt that we would anybody else. Um, and there's many aspects of practice that build on it. Um, and I think for all parents, it's, it is part of just cutting through the perfectionism that just drives us to be doing more and fixing more and scheduling more and constantly worried. And, and that's what, you know, how you get to a point of feeling like a good enough parent is to sort of catch that voice and eventually just say, you know, thanks anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the um, interesting things or intriguing things about this notion of self-compassion um, is that uh, it seems like such a waste of time sort of on the surface, you know, like, and because I teach things like that so much, I hear that a lot, like, oh, that's just being lazy or, uh, but interestingly enough, I'm I'm told also the research is showing that if you want to learn something, if you want to make a change, if you want to make progress in something, the most efficient, effective way of doing that is through self-compassion. That 
um, those kind of high stress, almost punitive, harsh environments, either internal or external, will spike performance, but briefly, and then mm-hmm. we crash. Mm-hmm. That if you want a sustained effort toward something, improvement, change, learning, it's got to be from something else. And one of the components of self-compassion uh, is really understanding this is part of the human condition. We fall down. Mm-hmm. You know, we may need to get up or get help getting up, but this is what life is like. It's not a straight shot, anything. Mm-hmm. We're always starting over and needing to pick ourselves up or make an adjustment or learn from a mistake. And so it's like, I guess in the vernacular, we'd say, like, give yourself a break, mm-hmm. you know, and understand that you're not different than anyone else in this. And you can be sort of part of the human family and, and have a very different sense of things. And the research really finds on self-compassion that people who are higher in self-compassion are are more likely to bounce back from mistakes that they make and are more likely to take healthier risks in life because they've got that soft landing of, I'm not going to judge myself so harshly by being so perfectionistic all the time. And then they can actually take the right risks and, and, and do all those things that they want to do and bounce back from any mistakes that we do all make as parents. And so it really does build our resilience. And that's also what we want our kids to internalize is not that harsh voice, but that, that kinder voice for when they make mistakes. They can just learn from them. I was listening to, to something on the way down about how different cultures just deal with mistakes so differently. Like American culture is just, it's like if you make a mistake, you're just an idiot. We're just so harsh on ourselves. And it's just seen as part of the process of learning in so many other cultures. I mean, we give lip service to that, but we really don't practice that. And we don't model that for our kids either. And I think it's, it is really important to model how we make mistakes and, and how we forgive ourselves in front of our kids. It also is another place that overlaps a lot. I mean, if, if you're parents, you've probably heard of the concept of mindset. You know, so the concept of mind, mindset is uh, Carl Dweck's research, which says that in any situation, a focus on hard work and effort over sort of more fixed trait and outcomes helps you sustain um, motivation in essence. I mean, and so for kids, they're much more likely to work harder and persist when they hit the first bump in the road if they've learned that effort is what got them with, you know, to the starting line in the first place. And, um, and it is, you know, an interrelated concept of like, you know, the bigger idea here, you know, we would tell our child like, yeah, you know, you fell down, get up, do it again. Um, but that isn't how we're often talking to ourselves. Interesting. It's interesting. I was going to ask, and I will ask, um, uh, what you think about actually teaching kids meditation and, and at what age, but before that I was thinking, Really, it's for any of us, you know, you can yeah. just say, oh, okay, so I learned it at first at 63, you know, it's all right, you know, it's sort of the same principles. Yeah. I mean, I always look at family mindfulness. I always feel like working, I always work backwards when I talk about mindfulness in families, you know, both in terms of, you know, your kids are learning. I mean, and here's, um, I almost feel like I want to be able to talk at two things simultaneously, because the, on the one hand, it is important to recognize that in large part, kids are, you know, you can't help the fact that kids are learning from you. So family mindfulness starts with your mindfulness practice, you know, and your kids aren't always going to buy in immediately. And if you're going to, you know, if you want to teach your kids mindfulness, you have to have some familiarity yourself and all that's true. And you want to tie that very closely to a self-compassion practice because you're never going to be mindful <laughs> all the time and you're going to, you know, lose your temper and all those things also. Um, but when you talk about mindfulness with children, and I'm interested to see how Chris talks about it, but I usually find it easier to just conceptualize moving backwards in that, you know, if you look at teens, you know, it has a lot to do with making it accessible to teens, but the practices aren't fundamentally different, you know, and then as you move younger and younger, 
you have to simplify the concepts some and maybe shorten the practices a little bit. And then, you know, you just keep moving backwards to the point where in early childhood, as with, I think, one of Chris's new books, you know, it really, you know, early childhood is all about play um, in many ways. Almost, and, and that ties together many of the threads we've already brought up today. And that play, first of all, in early childhood is a large part of how children develop executive function. And, and, you know, one of the things about seeing early childhood with clarity is sort of cutting through all the messages we're getting from everywhere else and recognizing that, like, you know, just playing is one of the most important things kids can do. And, some, and, and in the modern world, that sometimes takes, like, an active effort to protect that time um, because we get busy. But then when it comes to mindfulness in early childhood, it means making the activities that have to do with meditation often play-based. Or, or even if you're doing a breathing practice, you add some imagery to it. You make it more, you know, you connect with them differently. So. And yeah, and that, that is to me how I really think of teaching kids kids mindfulness. And sometimes I think we're really just teaching the elements of mindfulness, not even teaching them mindfulness per se. Um, I also just, I look back at experiences I had as a kid, and I remember going to nature camp and just sitting and listening to all the sounds in the forest. Like, can you hear the trees whispering to each other? Or we'd, you know, walk as quietly as we could in the woods. And when I first kind of heard the word mindfulness many years later, realizing, oh, that walking as quietly as we could, that took so much focus. That was almost like the mindful walking that I also learned. And so it's, it's, it's building into what, you know, kids are maybe already doing, building it into play, as Mark said. There's um, a child development researcher from the last century named Lev Vygotsky. And he did this experiment where he was trying to get eight-year-olds to stand still which went about as well as you would expect, right? So he got out his stopwatch and he said, okay, everybody stand still. And of course, five minutes later, everyone's running around all over the place. So he thinks about this for a little bit and he has them come back and he says, all right, I want you to stand still, but this time imagine that you're the guard at a factory or that you're a night guarding a castle. And what happens now, right? The kids can stand still for like 10 or 15 minutes. So he makes it play acting and fun and, and an image just like we might use in yoga or we might use in a visualization practice, but in a way that's really accessible for kids. And so that, those are some of the ways that we can start sharing some of these practices with kids and they start to grow up and then they, you know, maybe are just focused on their breath. Maybe they still, some of us still do focus on images <laughs> and it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I have a quotation for you, um, Dr. Mark. Uh, Without belittling ourselves or forcing ourselves to be unnaturally positive, we observe with curiosity and redirect ourselves until new habits develop. So that actually made me think of loving kindness practice, mm -hmm. which I was thinking of um, when you just said that, because uh, I've at times consulted on writing uh, curricula for loving kindness practice for like five-year-olds and things like that, you know, and, um, and uh, it was a lot about that, you know, like, let's get really concrete, you know, instead of when you do loving kindness practice, which is a, another kind of meditation, very closely aligned, but the distinct method, rather than resting your attention on the feeling of the breath, as we just did, um, you rest your attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases, like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, uh, starting with yourself. So it's like gift giving, it's offering this positive energy. So um, you know, we'd say things like, or, or commonly people would say, may I feel safe or may, may you feel safe and something like that. So we'd say, you know, to a kid, like, what does it feel like when you hold someone's hand mm -hmm. when walking down, mm. walking across the street? That's the feeling. That's what we're calling safe, mm. you know, and, um, uh, and just very, you know, kind of, and I find, um, 
that uh, children really like that. They tend to really like that kind of meditation, mm-hmm. something more, I guess it's more imaginative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like getting a hug from a loved one. That yes. type of thing. Yeah. 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 And giving one, and, you know, so there've been times when I was kind of put on the spot, like I was in a classroom and, uh, you know, and suddenly they said, oh, you know, she's going to teach you this other kind of meditate. It was mindfulness month in this class, in the school. And, uh, so I was a guest speaker and the mindfulness coach who came in every day uh, after selling insurance all day. Um, <laughs> it was like just a volunteer. It's lovely. And, uh, you know, um, said, uh, oh, she's going to teach you this other kind of meditation, heartfulness. So I was really on the spot. So I thought, okay, what do I do? So I said, okay, somebody you, you really like, you know, somebody who's really been good to you. And then, you know, I went through these different categories and I got to, how about a kid that you usually like, but you're really mad at right now, you know? And so we just kept playing with these different life experiences and it was good. Yep. And, and I think another thing to put in, you know, just into the context of family too, is that that's just something to bring into everyday life, uh-huh. you know? And that's, I think, you know, we don't want to get too caught up in like we're doing this mindfulness thing. Mm-hmm. It's all about how we're going to live. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about mm-hmm. the practice. So another way to bring those sorts of activities into everyday life is just, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's just the way you're interacting with the world, talking about things. So, um, you know, so there, there's more to it than, I mean, I, I mean, I, uh, it is that practice. And then there's also just like bringing that out into everything we're doing. Mm-hmm. So would you encourage parents to uh, help their kids practice generosity, for example, <laughs> things like um, that? I think that... Um, I, yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm, but that's specifically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I think also practices like generosity start to really build resilience. We know there's, again, really exciting research on what happens in our brains when we practice generosity. And there's even this very cool study where, you know, if we do something generous, that actually is contagious and trickles down person to person to person to person, like three degrees of separation. So it's, you know, we can call it a social contagion, or maybe we'd call it karma or something like that. But we also know that we're getting serotonin, which regulates our mood and anxiety, and we're getting oxytocin, which makes us feel attachment and love, and we're getting dopamine, which is a little reward booster as we do that. And so finding ways to practice generosity and to teach this to our kids, I think, is is so important. And, and every spiritual tradition knows this, and, and science knows this as well. But it's, I mean, I, I think about a, a tradition that I, I learned from an old uh, girlfriend whose grandma mother would all give the kids like a hundred dollars each holiday and she'd say you know 50 is for you and then 50 i'll give to a charity of your choice and it just started to to teach her and, and her family and all those grandkids just how to be generous and this really kind of practical practice that i just i love and and do now with my nieces and nephews and and, and my kids Great. So, so I'm a big generosity fan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm just imagining this uh, holding environment mm-hmm. as a combination of being able to hang in there through difficult feeling without getting lost in it or, or consumed by it or hating it. Um, being able to be more spacious rather than so contracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, not feeling so alone. Really feeling a sense of connection to someone or the world um, around. Um, And what else? I mean, mean, if we're talking about, you know, this whole umbrella of resilience, I think it has to do, 
there's an aspect of it that's do very much with relationships and cultivating, you know, one of the ways mindfulness overlaps with like traditional behavioral interventions, for example, is that most behavioral interventions, even before you get to how you're actually going to change the behavior, just start with like quality time together. And, and, you know, in my field of ADHD, even books working with the most difficult teens start with that, just creating that relationship. I think one thing we've sort of skirted around but haven't touched on directly is there's an aspect of all of this that has to do with, you know, what we're all going to prioritize for our families, you know, and, and resilience comes from relationships. So that might mean making sure we have time for family meals, making sure as we schedule a busy week, if we want to have time for meditation, making sure we have time for free play. So if you look at resilience, a piece of it also has to do with just the whole family lifestyle, you know, we're creating. And I think that's a second part of it. Um, and really, when you look at resilience as a whole, since that's sort of the theme for tonight, you know, I always look at it, you know, there's more, one aspect of it is simply that executive function is the actual concrete skill set we bring to problem solving. <clears throat> so we need to do things that help cultivate that, you know, however we can, in addition to all these other things. So maybe the last thing I'll ask, unless you were about to say something, uh, following that is about technology, including the parents' use of <laughs> <Right>. technology. <laughs> sure. Uh, and then we'll just open it up and hear from all of you. I'm sure you have a lot you want to say. But I was, uh, I am extremely attached to my <laughs> device. Uh, I was charging it just before, so I knew it had juice. Um, no, I put it away. <laughs> it's in your pocket now. Right? <laughs> um a friend once asked me to write a column or something like that, um, a blog, about um, renouncing technology or giving it up. And I said, you know that old Gandhi story? There's a story about Mahatma Gandhi where a mom brought her, I think it's like seven or eight-year-old son, uh, to see him and said, please tell him to stop eating sweets, stop eating so much sugar. And Gandhi said, come back in two weeks. And he, they came back in two weeks, and Gandhi said, stop eating so much sugar. And the mom said, why did you want the two weeks? And he said, so I could stop also. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't really, like, just tell him, you know. Like, so I'm kind of like that. This is what I told, you know, I'm not going to talk about renouncing technology. But Do you clearly, go, when you, you talk about sure. relationship and spending time and, yeah. you know, and everyone's, like, on their phone and it's right. different. Do you yeah. want to go first or you want to? Sure, I can, I can kick it off. I mean, I, the other thing that kind of come up, comes for me uh, what comes up for me out of the spiritual tradition is that there's that Zen saying of your, your thinking mind can be your greatest servant or your most terrible master. And I think that's how I feel about my phone. <laughs> it should be my greatest servant, helping me commune and connect, but it actually ends up being this, this master to me. And, um, you know, and it does come down to us modeling it. You know, I, it, it's, it, it is addictive the way these, you know, kind of beeps and notifications come in on what's called a variable rate reinforcement schedule, which is like a slot machine, basically, that, that makes us addictive. So it's very hard to renounce and step away from. I actually had to put my own software on my phone to keep myself from looking at it. And I've never felt better. I put it on about a month ago. I feel great. Um, so I recommend it. Uh, freedom is what I use. Um, and it's awesome. You like load up a website and it's like, you are now free from Facebook. Like the way it frames it is actually really in the positive, which I, I love. Um, it's called freedom and you have to pay for it, which makes you actually use it too, <laughs> I think. Um, but Mark and I were also thinking about writing a book called like 55 things to do besides hand your kid a cell phone. Yeah. Cause I think like, we also forget that there's other things to do, right? Like parents do that pass back, yeah. right? Or, or we're on our phone, but remembering to play I spy and these other, you know, fun games like that. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say, you know, and I can't, whenever technology is brought up, I can't help myself really, but you know, I, I, it, it is just about awareness. It's not a, you know, it's just a tool. It's just about whether we use it well or poorly, but it's one that has, you know, very honed to be addictive, like Chris says, you know, and unlike a lot of other changes culturally really has been shown to impact relationships and child development. You know, it isn't like rock and roll, just sort of this thing that's happening. Um, you know, it really can. It, it has been shown to, you know, do, to do stuff. So we need to be more aware as parents that we need to, you know, it's, it's about non-judgmental awareness. It's about seeing how we're living with it, making sure we're living skillfully with it like anything else. And, you know, there's been research showing that background television cuts down the length of conversation between parents and kids and having smartphones in the room is similarly disruptive. And, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, actual studies going on showing that if we're not aware and living proactively with it, uh, it can be quite disruptive. And it fragments the family experience. I mean, when I was a kid, we, you know, at least we would watch the same TV shows as a family and, you know, and, and be together. And now like families I work with, it's like, you know, the kids watch their own things and the parents watch their own things and everyone's in their own little subculture that they're already picking at age seven or eight and can't relate to each other. And we wonder why we're such a fractured society. There's this notion I heard recently of, of, of vertical culture, which is what comes down from our parents and through the generations, and horizontal culture, which is our peers. And we're getting, with technology, we're, we're finding horizontal cultures, like people who need to find each other are finding each other, which is great. But it's also scary in terms of what that is doing to family relationships and is also doing to our society as a whole as it's tearing it horizontally in a lot of ways. As, you know, I have a kid that's like he's online, like finding really disturbing, like white supremacist websites. And it's his family has, doesn't know. And how do we deal with this? They don't know where he's going and who he's hanging out with. And so it's, it's disturbing. And, and just to end in one, you know, come back to what Sharon on was saying. On a cheerful note. No, 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 I, no I'm not, I'm not in a downer too, I think. But just to oh, come great. back to, to what Sharon was saying about relationship, it's also about teaching kids about, you know, like the, like social media turns out to be a myth of a connection. And you have to right. teach teens that, you know, it's actually... Increased social media time actually correlates with a more big, a growing sense of isolation and unhappiness. So if you want to focus on relationship, you have to focus on, you know, connection with real people. I wonder if um, uh, a teenager could be encouraged to use social media differently. Like a, a university professor, student of mine once, he raised his hand in something I was teaching and he said, um, he was concerned about his students because uh, it was such a curated life they were displaying on social media. As he put it, nobody takes a photo of their mediocre lunch. You know, <laughs> it's got to be like this gorgeous thing, you know. Um, and uh, I said to him at the time uh, that maybe that was an age thing. Because, you know, like my people are always writing like about their shoulder surgery or something like that, you know. I think it's different, you know. But if you're younger and you're using it to show I'm better than everybody or I've got this, I've got this down, you know. I don't need things the way you people do or, or something that's in itself very destructive. And so could... Could you just encourage it? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think you absolutely. I mean, the military uses social media as a way to build resilience. They have a resiliency program and they use it as a way to connect with family. So, you know, again, it's all just about how you use it, I think, in the end. And it isn't inherently good or bad. It's just about it's just about awareness. And who like I, I have a gratitude group, for example, with friends where we just share on Facebook a few things we're grateful for a few times a week and we're connecting around something positive, And that's that's nice. 
The other thing that we do as we advertise our, our perfect lunch all the time on Facebook is, you know, we compare ourselves and usually we feel worse when we do that. Um, I, I heard, was that Mind and, one of the Mind and Life, someone was saying that they did this research, right? If you look at other people's status on Facebook all the time, you feel worse. But you can almost, you can literally go back and look at your own statuses and you're like, oh, that was a nice vacation. That was a beautiful lunch. I do have friends and do get invited to parties. And in some ways, like there's a risk of that making us and kids more narcissistic. But it also does remind us in some ways, if we look at that deliberately, that things can be pretty good. It is, it is something of an appreciation practice too. All right. Yeah. So uh, I don't know where the microphones are. Are they these? Um, if you have any questions, comments, anything you would like to talk about, it would help if you could use the microphone. Or we can repeat it back too. Or and and or we can repeat it. Um, all right. Um, I have two things that come up for me. One, um, so I'm not a parent, but I'm a teacher, and um, I teach this content like all day long. Um, and one thing I even noticed today, like I asked my kids, um, like, uh, hey, like just kind of check in, like when do you use your mindfulness? And I noticed there's this um, misconception that happens a lot, like it's to solve a problem. Hmm. That, that's kind of like what I wrote down, like the problem of like being dysregulated. And um, which is great, like that they can use it to like, as you said, like soothe themselves or you mentioned that. And like all the reasons that they mentioned that they use it, use it are, were awesome like when they're frustrated doing their work or when their feelings are hurt. But it just made me a little sad that like that's their go-to. Kind of like, um, what about using it to like open up to a joyful moment? You know, and I just really mm. wanted to remind them that it's not just to like fix something about themselves. And that speaks to kind of like the greater mindfulness in kids world that mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. to like calm kids down. Mm -mm. I know it's not. I'm yeah. talking about the myth. No, absolutely. <laughs> right, yeah. So I just, that came up for me, is that I just really want them to feel mm -hmm. like it's, they can, it's, it's something they can utilize to, like, open up to any moment mm -hmm. and feel that. So I don't know if yeah. you had any thoughts well, on that. I, you know, I think um, it is a common misperception around mindfulness. Also the fact that, you know, you're going to be still imperfect and all these other things or whatever else people may be perceiving. But a lot of it is just, you know, catching yourself when you're off in wherever you've been and being appreciative of something, you know, I think one of the most important ways to frame that is it's never a false appreciation. It's just that we miss a lot of things we could be appreciative of if we stop and pay attention. And, um, and that, and the, the broader practice has to do with appreciating things that are going well about ourselves, about our worlds, and also, you know, gratitude and compassion and all these things are part of the bigger practice. And, um, and if anything, the piece of it that has to do with staying settled in all the different ways you say is a way of letting go of all of the stuff that's between us and that, you know, greater awareness. Yeah. Like for them, sometimes they just think about it's like they're okay with themselves. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. My other thing that came up was, um, oh, I just have a question about, um, cause since so much of it is like relational and I noticed, um, the often the oftentimes kids are like defensive right away with like a tough conversation 
So like the thing that I mostly say to kids, and I was wondering if you have any other um, suggestions related to this, is um, like if we have to have a difficult conversation, the thing I usually say first of all is um, like, you're not in trouble. <laughs> you're not in trouble. But I don't know if like any other suggestions, you know, just to like soften the beginning of a conversation like that, because um, I'm interested in that. I think I think timing is everything and is really hard. And so finding finding the right time to bring things up, I think help, you know, kids when they're stressed out, they're not going to be open. I mean, very literally their brains and their prefrontal cortex is off. Nothing is going to get in. So finding that time when they are a bit more settled. Right. And it's maybe not so threatening. Right. Like you and I are facing each other. We're making eye contact. Right. That's actually kind of a threatening stance. So side by side conversations, those ones in the car or at the grocery store or doing an activity together can sometimes, you know, or as, as a teacher, maybe, you know, doing an art activity as you as you raise a conversation can be a little bit less threatening sometimes. And kids don't go into shutdown mode in quite the same way. I wanted to ask about um, any of your views on what I think of as, as um a mandatory mindfulness concern. Um, I ask this because I deal with um, kids and grown-ups of all different ages. So I have kids of my own who are eight and five. Um, I'm also working with some other people to build a mindfulness program in the law school where I teach. So grown-up kids. Um, and uh, I, I feel like I read years ago, I mean, something from John Kabat-Zinn um, or somewhere, but some sense that you know, if you, if you want to go pass along mindfulness to your kids or something, just go meditate yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't give it to your kids because the risk of them feeling it's been imposed on them and reacting against it is greater than the benefit of doing it. So just do it yourself and maybe they'll kind of get it by osmosis. And I've done more than that. I mean, I do little exercises and I do different things. Um, but I feel I've noticed for me a, a real pull in the direction away from what might be. And there's no such thing, of course, as mandatory mindfulness in that you can't make somebody meditate, mm -hmm. but you can make people feel like they're being made to meditate. <laughs> and I, I do think right. there's a risk. And so in the law school setting, I have colleagues who, who one who begins his classes with a three-minute sort of meditation with a huge mandatory class. And I, I don't do that. Um, I want people to opt in. But, but I, I guess I just wonder, how do you, how do you see drawing that line or, or, or where? Um, I mean, I, I don't know that I would um, refrain from offering it because it's just a tool. It's just a set of tools, you know. I mean, if the class is mandatory and the person starts with three minutes of meditation somewhere, I think there needs to be an opt-out, not um, necessarily opt-out of the class or get up, but you might say, you know, um, these are some tools you may find they're not really relevant to you or they're not that interesting for you, but, you know, they've been important for me. So I am going to offer them so that there's this exposure, you know, there's this opportunity. Like if it becomes sort of you're not a good person or student or attorney until you adopt this, that's a problem. You know, if it's just saying, hey, here, you know, um, and you can tell, you know, like I've, I've been in situations, especially I wrote one book, which I'm sure is not here, called Real Happiness at Work. And after that, for a little while, it was, um, and I mean, always, sometimes, but, you know, really in a, a kind of intensified way right then, brought into different companies and 
um, organizations. And sometimes you could just tell these people the last thing <laughs> in the world they wanted was to sit in that room. You know, I once went to some firm and I said, thank you. Everyone was sitting there like that. <laughs> <laughs> Arms crossed, glowering at me. And it was like, I don't know, four o'clock or five o'clock. And I said, do you have to stay and make up for this time? And they said, yeah. You know, so it wasn't exactly the best environment, you know, for. But I, and I guess I'm interested too, if, if, you know, with kids at home, <laughs> if like a, a daily ritual where there's a time where you're meditating and they're invited or, or what might be structures to, to bring that in that you think walk sure. that line well? I mean, I think um, in families, um, a piece of it is what you're saying. Like if it's just part of your life, your kids are going to see that. Like I remember years ago go, I don't, you know, going on a hike and just coming around a corner and at like three or four, one of my kids was pretending to meditate on a rock, you know, something like that. But so some of it is just seeing you do it. Um, but also, you know, just like in a business environment, I think with parents, it's, it, you know, you can offer it, but you can't tell somebody to go practice mindfulness. So you can try to make routines of it around home and you just got to get a feel like this is, you know, you can do a gratitude practice around meals or you can do a meditation practice around bedtime. But if it starts feeling fall, false or like your kids are sitting there with their arms crossed, like they're in a business meeting, you know, you might have to back <laughs> off for a while. So it's about offering it and trying to make it accessible to me. And I, I think back to, to when I was a kid and those moments also of, I remember being my, my first kind of real experience. I remember being with my dad and we're just like floating on a raft in a pond. And he said, you know, if you look at a cloud and you breathe, you can make the cloud disappear with your mind. And he never said that that was mindfulness, but it was like this magic trick or walking in the woods as quietly as possible. Um, so in some ways, I mean, you know, it's you want to like disguise it too much, but I think making it playful, making it invitational, I think is so key. And when I've gone and, and, and had those situations where I'm speaking to not very interested people, you know, I just try to be humorous and be like, you know, we're going to do this thing for three minutes and no one's going to know if you're just making your grocery list, just go ahead and do that. <laughs> like, I'm never going to know. And, you know, and that also just can kind of break the ice and the people that that want the invitation will accept it and other people you know, at least, you know, they've, you know, pretended to laugh at my joke and that, you know, then, then they're feeling a little bit better for that next three minutes. Um, but I do, you know, with my own son, you know, as, as he gets older, trying to make, you know, some rituals around it, just a little moment of silence or two at the dinner table or practicing gratitude or something that's a bit more structured and active than just sitting still, which is tough for kids, right? As Vygotsky found and any parent has found or teacher has found. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name is Will. Um, <clears throat> thank you all for being here. Um, I've read your book, and uh, it's such a pleasure to 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 see you in person. And uh, um, I, uh, you know, when I first walked in here tonight, I was, we took a taxi from uh, from Thirty uh, Third Street on the east side, and I was just so tired, and I was just in such a foul mood. And so when I walked in here, okay, and um, I, I was like really. You know, and I sat down, I was like, I was aware of like my body language and, um, and, you know, because I, I do a lot of work with my son or try to do a lot of work with uh, nonverbal communication. And of course, that's like, you know, not having like being completely naked. So it was just like, oh, my God, they're going to, you know, so I was trying to control myself. Um, but uh, and uh, and then we went into that meditation. I just, you know, really got into the zone. Um, yeah, I. Um, 
you know, from somebody who has incredibly, I've, I've been diagnosed three times by different doctors uh, with ADHD. And so I go through this whole sort of denial and acceptance, you know, um, and I, you know, and I, um, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, I think that, oh, I can, I, I don't need to take these medications. I can just go ahead and, and do meditation. And, uh, you know, and, I, and, you know, recently I've been, I've been kind of going over into that, uh, into that area that I can, you know, maybe, you know, go into meditation without taking, I mean, going into, yeah, um, do meditation and not take drugs for my ADHD. Um, and, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, um, um, since I am, I am kind of new ish to meditation and, uh, we do have a son who also has been diagnosed with ADHD and social anxiety. Um, he, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge to get him sort of to come out of his cave. I mean, he is so private. He is, he is, um, like we don't know who he is. Um, and, um, so there's a lot of fear, I think with, with regards to his parents and I love, you know, I'm a literal person. So I love the images. I love specific examples that you all gave and, uh, on how to go, how to reach in there, uh, with, with, with children in, in, in meditation. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can give me any insight on how to sort of, you know, reach in there and engage with him he's he's going to graduate um high school on the 20th of june and uh and uh you know he uh, he just wants to come home to his parents uh couch and play video games and be on social media and um so it's a it's a struggle um so any help you can give us thank you um sounds like a very challenging situation um and um you know, in a very, it, it's too intricate a one to give a short answer to. And I think um, in many ways, I would fall back on a lot of the things we've talked about tonight of, you know, the one thing to always start with, you know, that you have most direct uh, influence on is, is just finding your own, you know, care for yourself, you know, just, you know, understand that it's, you know, allow for the fact that it's challenging for yourself as a parent. And, um, you know, take care of yourself as a starting point for recognizing that it's such a difficult situation. Because then when it comes to, you know, reaching to, out to someone else who's struggling, you know, that's pulling together everything we've touched on today, right down to Sharon's asking me literally what ADHD is. I mean, all of, so the answer comes down to relationships and understanding ADHD enough to, to sort of look through all the different intervention, you know, really understanding ADHD is part of the answer, which I can't do up here right now. And then on an individual level, um, often it comes down to just putting aside, you know, uh, almost, I, I guess the image that's going to mind is like just putting aside notions of what should be and just finding a way to connect, you know, right now in this time with him, you know, just seeing what, what's, seeing where that might start. And at the end, I think the equanimity practice of, of letting go, <laughs> right? And letting go of, of, of these ideas we have about our kids. And, and also knowing that as you found your path with ADHD, right, that, that he probably ultimately will as well. And that, that that's the most powerful thing that you can do is, is model that and try not, too hard, try, try not to push that too hard on him. But he'll be able to see, you know, what these practices have done for you and probably already does see that. And that seed is in there and I think will we'll really grow over time. But it's... That's hard to wait for. <laughs>
I mean, I've often felt I don't have any children, although I have a, a goddaughter that I've, I've been very close to. But um, I've often thought perhaps one of the hardest things about being a parent is um, that that sense of extraordinary patience, because the result of all one's effort and love and and connection may not be tonight. You know, it may not show itself tomorrow, but I, I think it's so easy to dismiss it. And I think it's not nothing, you know, it, it's really significant. It's like every seed of connection gets, that gets planted is, is very important. It's just really allowing the fact that I can't know right now. It's like you give someone a gift and they don't thank you right away. Hmm. That doesn't mean it proves to be irrelevant in their life or, or they're not going to treasure it, you know, later on. And when they look back, very often they do, very likely they will, you know, but at the time it's not, it's not gratifying. Um, and I also thought of, uh, as you were describing the situation, it also reminds me very much the sense of like letting go of what we think should be and just be with what is. It reminded me of a, a friend of mine who was describing taking a walk with his mother who was getting older. And when she'd been somewhat younger, she was like a, an incredibly adventurous person, you know, like um, traveled the world and, you know, did all these things. Um, but as she got older, she got more and more timid and, and more and more afraid. And he said they were taking a walk one day and there was like this itty bitty little incline ahead. And she, I can't, she said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And he was very impatient. And he said, it's like nothing, <laughs> you know, it's like, you went off to India, you know, like it's nothing. And then he realized that to her, it was not nothing. To her, it was like Mount Everest, you know, and that this was the reality as she was experiencing it right then, you know, and so finding other ways to enjoy her and, and be present with her, and, um, uh, you know, rather than wanting her to be the way she had once been. And so we all face that in some degree or another in, in relationship. Yeah. Hi. Um, so the reason that I came here is because um, I, I always look to children, like I'm so in awe of children. Um, I mean, it, it was interesting to me when you brought up, you know, teaching children mindfulness and in terms of ex executive function and all that, because to me that never lived in the realm of mindfulness so much as just um, raising them. <laughs> but um, I, I looked at children and I think, wow, they're so mindful, you know, in so many ways. Like they, they had such an amazing ability to live in the moment and to surrender and to enjoy and to notice things that are in their, in their world, you know, and, um, I don't really have a question, but I, I just wanted to bring it up as sort of the part of children that's, mm. um, often not talked about when we think about bringing mindfulness to children is the fact that they're already <laughs> so incredibly mindful. Right. right. Mm. They should bring it to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I look at them and I, I, I try to get in, you know, to be inspired, really. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really about maintaining 
mindfulness in kids because I think what we do is we acculturate it out of them. Oh, don't look at that. That's not interesting. Oh, this food is good. That one's bad, right? Don't, you know, like, let me tell you how to have your experience and give you a story about your experience, not letting you have it in the immediacy of the moment with your five senses and, and your faculties. And um, so I do think it's, 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 you know, I do this work of, you know, talking about teaching kids mindfulness, but it's also like tragic that we're thinking about doing that <laughs> at the same time. I mean, I really think it kind of is because it, it should be their natural state. Um, yeah. I don't really need the mic. You want me to use the mic? Okay. Okay. Thanks. Who right now is doing um, research on self-compassion? Who to read? Any resources that you could recommend? Uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. Neff and Germer. And, well, uh, and also, if you're working with kids, uh, Karen. Uh, so Kristen Neff, uh, Chris Germer. And then if you're interested in working with kids, um, Karen Bluth has a new book out on self-compassion for teens. Those are three that I'm aware of. Yep. And, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, feel free to email us too if you want more resources yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to the technology issue that we were discussing earlier. I have two boys. 110, 17, and the 10 year old who's in fourth grade, I feel myself that I, I'm fairly good at trying to moderate the use of technology, balance their activities with reading, or we have family board games we play and stuff like that. But the 10 year old is in a class with some kids who already have cell phones. And it's not because the mother works. I don't know why it is. And he asks me. And so even if you're able, or if you think you're able <laughs> to manage it well on your own, what do you say to your child about the other kids when he's asking, why do they have it? And if they have it, why can't I? Without disparaging the children's parents and what they may or <laughs> may not be. That's an important thinking. mindfulness moment for me at home quite often is... You know, describing without sort of, I wasn't going to describe to their parents. I thought you were going to say something different, which is explaining to my children why there's boundaries around technology without disparaging technology too much. Because I'm on my phone all the time too. Um, you know, I think, first of all, I think there's an inherent, you know, centuries old parenting lesson that's really important to come back to periodically, which is um, life's not fair. Um, <laughs> and uh, because sometimes you just have to say like, you know, these are the sorts of things that we believe in in our house. And, um, and that's okay. And, you know, and there are parents starting to push back some, like I know there's a national movement, something called, I think it's something like wait till eight, which is about, you know, trying to get everybody to agree to, you know, wait on smartphones until later. So I think there is just the reality of sometimes it is important as parents to say like, because that's what we think best. Um, and then I think they're also, you know, I would, I would add a little tiny piece, which is that Sometimes there are also ways to use technology to manage technology. And if you're, you know, um, you know, like we introduced smartphones a little earlier than I might have otherwise because of that social piece, but we just shut down everything except texting. So, you know, so it wasn't as much of it. So there are ways to use, you know, to be more proactive. I always feel like introducing technology to kids is, really should be seen as like handing them the car keys. You know, you get a learner's permit first, and then if it seems like you're living with it well, we'll expand your you know, your independence around it. So for, so for, for 10 is very young. I don't, I wouldn't advocate for a phone in particular, but if the point that it seems necessary seems, 
you know, earlier than you might otherwise want, you know, one of the answers sometimes is to not, you know, is to find a way to compromise a little bit. You know, we're just going to, this is how you're going to get it. And if it goes well, we'll start, you know, expanding it that way. I think we have come to the end of our time. No, that's it. I, I just, yeah, I would say I'll just add a tiny bit about parenting that. I mean, that's any of these talks like this can just feel you, make you feel so put on the spot as a parent. Um, but really, it's about just finding what you think is best. So thank you all for being here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.